I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, hello, and welcome. Welcome back, should I say, to the Indie Football Podcast. I am Ed Manning, sports editor of The Independent. And on this very busy weekend of, of football, and busy week indeed of football, I am flanked by uh, two of my most trusty militia, uh, Jack Austin to my right. Hello, Ed. Pride of Wales. And to my left, uh, Jonathan Luke. Hi. So, um, pretty spicy weekend of football, all things told. Um, bit of a, how do we say it, a news bomb dropped on Friday, uh, splattered our, our entrails all over the web, <laughs> all over <laughs> the internet. Um, then we had Saturday, FA Cup semi-final, Sunday FA Cup semi-final, and then Late last night, uh, Napoli reviving the Italian title race in a big way. Um, we'll be talking about all of those today, I guess. And it's also, pure football, isn't it? Pure yeah. football juice coming out of our ears. Like, <laughs> never from concentrate. Never from concentrate. No, no, no 100% pure football juice. Actually squeezed. Um, it's it's bubbling over. Uh, we'll also look ahead, by the way, to the Champions League semi-finals, which are this week, and that is real. That's pure football juice. You know, who is it? Real Madrid. Real Madrid. No, Bayern Munich against Real Madrid. Real Madrid on that, that is. A stonker, and then Liverpool Roma, the two surprise semi finalists, let's say. Um, but we'll discuss that later, and we'll discuss that through the medium of uh, Kevin Strootman, who we interviewed uh, exclusively last week, and uh, you can read that on the website. So I want to start with Napoli because I just think it's a great story. And uh, is there anyone with a heart who doesn't support Juventus who doesn't want Napoli to win Serie A this season? Well, I think if you if you don't want Napoli to, to do it this season, you must have a, a dustbin for a heart, as they say, <laughs> as Buffon might. Not and and he would probably agree with you on this. Actually, uh, yeah. He'd probably agree with you on this. Uh, the situation is is thus. After Kalidou Koulibaly's 90th minute towering header last night, 1-0 win for Napoli in Turin, uh, which is obviously massive. Um, there's great videos on our website of them arriving back in Naples last night. Um, and trying to get out of the airport on the team coach, but uh, all the just nut cases in the south of Italy, uh, setting off the pyro and stuff. Napoli are now on 84 points, Juve are on 85. There are four games to go. But Napoli play Fiorentina away, Torino at home, Sampdoria away, Crotone at home. Juve play Inter away, Bologna at home, Milan at home, Roma away. What are the chances, by the way, of Torino rolling over? Just, just I, I like to think I like <laughs> to think Torino might play that game with flip flops on. I'm not. I'm not saying that Italian football is is inherently no, you know uh, you know. Uh, I think acceptable I, that kind of. I thing. mean, but isn't the traditional thing? Especially they, in um, in Argentina, this happens a lot. So like Crotone at home on the final day, like Napoli obviously need to sort that. But in uh, Italian football, you're allowed. They're still you're allowed to offer the uh, the bonuses to win. So Juventus could offer the Crotone players like. 100,000 each. Yeah, and it certainly and a, happens in Argentine football still. And a tour of the stadium, something like that. And, and Ro- Roma, Roma at the Olympico on the final day for Juve. I mean, Roma won't have anything to play for and, and could. Well, well Ro- Roma are chasing Champions They might have Champions a Champions League, League final, in which case they might have, you but know, might be resting It's actually all very close for the, for the final Champions League spot as well because oh, there's only, there's only one point in it between Lazio, Roma, and Inter. And they do not want to lose out to, to Lazio in exactly. that chase. But one point separates them, and and it you know you have to say that that Napoli have the easier run in. But for me, apart from just making things more interesting, because you know the super clubs win everything these days. Um, Napoli play some of the best football I've seen in a long time, outside maybe Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. I think they are one of the most elegant teams to watch. So given that we probably expect them to kind of get stripped down, they might lose the coach, they might lose key players and stuff. Do you not feel like this is the win that the Italian league needs? Yeah, I mean, the sadness, I I suppose, is that at that level of of European football, which even in Napoli's case is still pretty high in in, in the scheme of things, you get one season 
if you have a team like that, if you have a you know a, a spirit and, and a manager and, and a, a kind of moment like that, you get one season max. And Monaco found that out. Um, Leicester found that out, I guess. And Ajax, I guess. You, you'll get they'll get picked apart in, in the summer and so I think it's all the more reason to just kind of enjoy this team and this season while while we still got it yeah you're, you're right Jack about the uh, Champions League checks I hadn't noticed that third so third and fourth get Champions League uh, there are three teams separated by one point Roma Lazio and Inter Inter currently out of it on 66 Roma Lazio up there on 67 so Juve have to play Inter who are in the Champions League chase Milan who are desperate for a Europa League spot, they're chasing Atalanta, and Roma, who need the Champions League. Bologna are irrelevant. They're in the mid-table, so so that's nothing. Um, Crotone could need to win on the final day to stay up. Almost certainly they will. Uh, otherwise, Sampdoria are probably out of the Europa chase now. Torino have got nothing to play for, so that should be a flip-flops game. Except banter. <laughs> and, and isn't that the greatest currency of them all? Uh, and Fiorentina Fiorentina are pretty much dead Um, so yeah so uh, not to be partisan at all but I really really hope Napoli win the the Italian title because uh, there's something about Juve I I think I would have liked to have seen the scenes in the Michael Oliver household when uh, that header went in yeah, well, because, I mean, everyone knows he absolutely he despises Juventus. He hates Buffon. Um, Interestingly, though, I've been... Buffon, having been, rightly, I think, pilloried for the last... There's week, been some big backlash against him, is not at, at full time, he went over to Koulibaly and, you know, gave him a little pat on the head and, and like, had a really heartfelt and sincere conversation. And, you know, he's, he's clearly got a lot of class to him as well, uh, Buffon. So I, I, think, I thought that was a nice... And hashtag really nice touch. Well, maybe he just learnt from <laughs> the backlash to a, a situation of significantly less class in, in virtually the same situation about yeah. a week ago. Um, I think if you're looking at uh, the Italian in title race purely as a thing of resources, you know, Napoli do have a rich owner in, in De Laurentiis who's staggering amounts of money through Hollywood and stuff. But the, the kind of way that they've cobbled that team together is just so much more interesting. They've got some really, for want of a better word, really weird and random players kind of forced together. Players like Marek Hamzik who have, have stayed loyal when they didn't need to. And um, I really like Dries Mertens. It's kind of that little roadrunner style yeah. player who just, you, you can't get round. Um, Haizai, the, the right back, is one of the nicest. And Kudabayi as well, who, remember, Chelsea bid 60 70 million from last year. It's interesting to see as well how the how well the Benitez era players are doing. I mean, Rayner is. I don't. I, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess at how old he is, but Rayner's still still hanging. Still hanging around. Callahan has had a great season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, the, it's it's a team that it's not a single generation of players. It's a team that's been almost kind of accumulated like like layers of sedimentary rock and and as have, have somehow solidified and calcified into a coherent and and really formidable whole. And, and Sarri, fundamentally, is the extreme earth pressure for uh, squeezing them all together. Yeah, the, geo, the geothermal force that... that uh, I'm where is this pr- going? I'm lo- yeah, I'm losing my rock formations pretty quickly. <laughs> um, anything else to say on Napoli before? I think... I don't know if you want to do FA Cup next or if you want to do Wenger next. Well, I will, I will I'll just say this on, okay. on Juventus, that the last... Was it seven wins in a row? Six wins in a row? Mm-hmm. Six titles? They've rarely faced a, a challenge like this. They've, I think, won it by an average of, of eight to ten points each time. And it will be really interesting to see how they cope with the pressure. Because, you know, as, as we, we alluded to with, with Buffon, they know the, the power of a, of a great narrative. And, and really, the, the, kind of the force of narrative is very much with Napoli at the moment. Well, three of their four fixtures are bloody difficult. And they've got Real Madrid twice in the same period. And potentially a Champions League final if they get by Real Madrid. So, uh, no, they haven't. Bayern Munich, so The Real Madrid thing happened. Yes, you know, <laughs> that would be in the past. That would be a thing that already occurred. Okay, fine. Cut that, cut that. FA Cup, no, we don't, we don't cut anything here because um, we like to be honest and uh, transparent. That's why I admitted that uh, we screwed up the recording last week. Uh, FA Cup semi-finals, you were at the first one. The second one. The second one. Uh, Chelsea-Southampton yesterday. Chelsea-Southampton, um, where we saw Antonio Conte's team win comfortably. Yeah, Southampton yeah. didn't put up as much of. There were, I mean, there were a couple of moments, I guess, when Southampton could have 
could have found a toehold back into the game, but Chelsea would just had a little bit of an extra gear. And I think uh, from the moment they went ahead and Southampton had to chase the game, which they hadn't really set themselves up to do, uh, I think it was pretty much of a foregone conclusion. We talked, I mean, a lot of the kind of, the immediate reaction to this was, okay, so we've got the Conte-Mourinho final. So this, Jack, is a final where you've got Conte's final game, basically, we all expected to be his final game in charge of Chelsea. Although I think they've got to be looking at their options now and being kind of, I mean, do we get rid of him? But if you assume it's Conte versus Mourinho, final game, Conte and Mourinho don't like each other. Both of these teams kind of need a trophy to make this season less of a failure. I, I don't know even if either would categorise it as a success, just winning the FA Cup. But um, this final has at least something to it. Yeah, well, Mourinho said that his focus was still finishing second in the league, but I don't believe that. He's a trophy man. He he wants to win trophies, and for him, <laughs> it's a <laughs> it's a it's a failure if he doesn't get his hands on a trophy. Uh, you see, by the way, he always prioritises the uh, league cup. He always wants something to show that he's been successful for that season. Um, he, he hates talking about his successes. He famously. does. He does. Yeah, very modest man. Yes. Um, and yeah, again with Conte, he doesn't want his if it is his final season, his final game to at Chelsea to be uh, a negative season. He wants it to end on a high. They're not going to get Champions League, but an FA Cup win, get the fans behind him. And, and part of this, uh, you know, this thing about Mourinho is like a big trophy guy, has been, for want of a better word, transposed onto Mauricio Pochettino, who because Man United beat Spurs two one on on Saturday. In a game that certainly, uh, so Jack Pitbrook, who covers Spurs for us regularly, uh, described it as basically a bottle job um, by Tottenham. Uh, and you're looking at that that team, and, and for all the progress Spurs have made under Pochettino, which is enormous. Uh, and I think over the last three or four years, they've probably been the second best team in England. But they're not winning anything. Um, it's becoming kind of a stick to beat Pochettino with. And then Pochettino after the game suggesting perhaps that uh, he might not stick around to, to see the next phase. So, Johnny, what do you make of the Spurs situation with regards to all this? Well, as, as someone who's, who's watched Spurs you know, quite a lot over the last two or three years, I didn't actually find anything in Saturday's game that surprised me. They have a, a real problem, I think, with defending for long periods of time against elite-level sides. We saw it at home against Chelsea, but all the way back in August, we saw it against Juventus, we saw it twice against Manchester City, that their entire setup is almost predicated on the need for not having to defend. And when they have to defend for long periods, they're brittle and they concede. And they, they concede goals far too easily. I think whether that's the definition of bottling it or whether that's due to some mental frailty, I, I don't know, that's, that's a debate for another time. But I think there's... Well, it's probably a debate for, for two or three minutes' time. But uh, <laughs> but I think that's something that really needs to be addressed because it felt inevitable from when United equalised that Tottenham's defence would not be able to cope with successive ways of, of, of United pressure. Do you think... Um, the f is it worrying? That, because fundamentally, I think a lot of people now would have they probably placed Pochettino on a higher plane than, than Jose Mourinho in terms of a coach that you want for your club. But I did feel that this was a game where I think just Mourinho got it right. I think I think he, he played around and found the weaknesses in that Tottenham team. And I think a lot of it does come down to if you can just put them under pressure. But do we do we believe that Pochettino being exposed in these big games, you know, I think a lot of the narrative that's come out of it is what does Spurs have to do to take the next step? Now, does that equate with just him being outthought in, in a one-off game at Wembley? Or do you subscribe to the idea that it is a greater issue at hand, a larger problem with the club? Well, I have to say that I, I did disagree slightly with Jack's piece where he said that Spurs were clearly better and, and gave it away. I thought Spurs were definitely better in the, tw in the first 20 minutes. But if you look man for man, the talent in that United team is actually at least on a par with the talent in that Spurs team. What has elevated Spurs over the last few years is the ability to become more than the sum of their parts. When they are just their parts, and I, I do admit that for, for parts of the second half, that's all they were, they are they are made to look quite ordinary. And look, if you if you think about the talent in that 
United side. Pogba, Sanchez, Lukaku, all, all combining for that, you know, for that first goal. It's um, it's it's slightly underselling United, I think, to say that they they were an inferior team who who basically preyed on a on, on a, a mentally weaker rival. One of the big problems United have had in recent weeks, Jack, is that they've got all the big names on shed loads of cash, Pogba, Sanchez, and, and stuff, and they're not performing. This was almost like the perfect narrative game for Mourinho and that all, all of his big names his big guys came up in the in the right moment right yeah um i think the the way that they pay their players is almost the antithesis of what uh uh spurs do in the sense that they're paying the big wages getting the big names whereas spurs are building a team together and they've almost got a feeling of togetherness as opposed to a team of individuals um but what i think that on the weekend, almost United showed more of a feel of togetherness in the sense that Mourinho isn't afraid to come out and say he wants to win. And he wanted to win that FA Cup semi-final. His players wanted to win. Whereas Pochettino came out and was like, mm, not that fussed on the FA Cup. It's not a big deal for me. But if you ask any one of those Spurs players if they want to win the FA Cup, hell yeah, of course they will. I kind of uh, I, I kind of like, I like Poch's tactic of, of mugging off the FA Cup at every opportunity. Because then if you just happen to win it, and you're like, oh, yeah, well, I'm glad we won, but... We don't. Oh, that old thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, not that bothered. And, and and I guess in some way it does relieve the pressure on the players. It's, you know, you're not forcing them into it. But at some point, there is an expectation of victory when you're spending this much money and, and you're playing this well, right? Yeah, um, I, I'd slightly disagree with that. I think that um, if you're a player and your manager's going out week in, week out, saying, we don't want this, not important, we don't want to win it, and then after going out saying, next season, I'll probably just play the kids... Like a lot of these players haven't got any silverware, they haven't won any medals, um, and they're with the way Man City are playing, they're unlikely to win the Premier League or the Champions League. This is almost one of their best opportunities to win a trophy. And when your manager's coming out and saying, "Oh, not that first," I'm not sure that is exactly what the players want to hear. I suspect he was saying something quite different in private, and I, and I think, mm. but is that is that not uh, mixed messages? Yeah, possibly, but I, I think he's 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 going into that dressing room and saying, "Look, I, I know I'm trying to take the pressure off you, in in public, but everybody knows, fans know, the players know just how important it was to win that semi final. I mean, there's there's no getting around that really, and the fact that they didn't turn up will be just sickening for a lot of them. Yeah, do we? Um, if you're looking at Spurs, um, I'm going to get Jack Pitbrook to write more fully about this probably tomorrow. But everyone's saying that you know Spurs need to kick on to the next level. They need to win a trophy. They need to kind of step up. And, and a lot of the focus is on Daniel Levy to invest more because fundamentally all of their top players are underpaid in terms of market value. Um, they're not a team that goes out and spends massive money on players. They they only tend to go in the kind of in the bargain bin. And what I mean by that is I know they spend lots of money on players. Like for example, twenty five million on Lucas Moura. But Lucas Moura is probably like a in this market, like a 40, 45 million pound player, it's just that PSG was selling him because they need to get rid of guys to reach uh, FFP. So what would you say Spurs have to do? What are Spurs' priorities this summer if they are to take this, uh, in inverted commas, like, step to the next level, each of you? I think they, I think they need a big name player. They need, for me, their signings have all been underwhelming. They've not been signings that you'd expect to break into the first team at all they've almost been signings to fill the FA Cup or the the League Cup or the games against the smaller teams in the Premier League to come off the bench I think for me they need to have somebody who's gonna he's gonna bring competition back I mean Deli Ali started almost every game this season and has been quite poor for a lot of it he's had no one to challenge him for that position he's had, he's had flashes isn't he but it's not been a dominant season like he had last year um, I actually think they need more players like Deli Ali who Will will look quite rotten for large periods of a game, but then will will turn up. Deli Ali is one of their few big game players. A lot of them actually shrink in that situation. Uh, I can't remember the last time Lamella had a had a, a decent game in a really big game. And yeah. uh, you might, I mean, you might almost say they need somebody a, li- a little bit of creative disruption this summer. They need to sign a player who when things are going badly for them, we'll, we'll grab them by the scruff of the neck, but may, you know, run the risk of, of disrupting that really pleasant, you know, rose-scented dressing room harmony that they've got. I don't, I mean, just to pick a name off the top of my head, somebody of the, the ilk of an Arnautovic, 
somebody who can who can see the game, but will also give his teammates a kick up the arse. Well, so one that they've been chasing for the uh, last couple of years and have indeed a bid for uh, was Wilfred Zaha. And one of my problems I have with Spurs occasionally is that when they're coming forward against teams who are just willing to sit deep, sometimes they just lack a guy who can just beat a man. You know, yeah. so, so you know yeah. sometimes like basically everyone's matched up. Uh, the defense is like zonally laid out. You, you're stripped across the field. You just need someone who can beat one or two men, and, and it completely changes the game. And, and you force things to happen, and then that happens. Someone has to make a, you know someone has to make a covering run, and then Christian Eriksen suddenly free on the edge of the box. Right. That's what, that's Walker could do that, and Trippier. Trippier can't, and Aurier can't really, and I think somebody like somebody who can beat a man on on the outside, yeah, which which then stretches the game. And Spurs basically will never spend the amount of money they would need to buy a Wilfred Zaha because Crystal Palace would ask too much money. He's got too long left in his contract, and he's already earning more than a lot of the top Spurs players. And he loves Croydon. He just, he loves Croydon. He, he does. I mean, you know, he came out and said it the other day. He's I don't really want to leave. It's my hometown club, etc. He's already had that bad experience of leaving. I think if a Champions League club came in with loads of money, I mean loads of money, that Palace would have to consider it. But I don't think Tottenham are ever going to be that club. I don't think that's... This is the whole point. This is that they never shop from that sort of bin. They always shop from the, the bin below it. And Miguel did a story last week um, said that Spurs are going to have about 120 million to upgrade the squad this summer. They're also going to sell Toby. Uh, so that might be up to say 150. Um, but, but they're they, looking I mean, at like Jay Rodriguez, looking at Johnny Evans. I think Johnny Evans might be good value, but Jay Rodriguez might not be the player you want. The game-breaking talent we're talking about. Johnny Evans might not be the worst shout actually. Well, <laughs> he's only three million pounds. Yeah, I think for that money you don't get much in the Premier League. So I think no, it's yeah, absolutely I mean, but, but central. You you want to play him in games where, like for example. Real Madrid or Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League where you, you do kind of have to sit 10, 15 yards deeper and you do need someone who can marshal a defence and and win his headers. Not he's, a bad shout. He's very experienced. He's probably, you know, he's, talking about a guy who's probably played like 50 Champions League games in his career already. I, I do. There are shades of Ryan Nelson here as well where... where um, <laughs> The, the, the big January... Was it January 2012? The big transfer window when Harry Redknapp really had a chance to to push for the title and in came Luis Saha and Ryan Nelson and and maybe Stephen Pienaar I was it, actually watching the other day uh, completely unrelated uh, when Luis Saha was playing for Fulham and was really really good uh, and some of his finishes were, uh, you kind of forget how good he was because he went on to Man United and kind of had a bit of a meh he was alright sort He's of time exactly exactly he was the, always the backup but when he was on, at Fulham and he was on fire he was like Pretty much unstoppable. He was so fast. Great Two, movement. Two-footed. Yeah, yeah. Just slid and slid. He kind of just slid between the fullback and the centre-back. Would like chip the keeper from 25 yards. No worries. Uh, but that's, uh, that's the end of the side. That was one of the great sliding doors transfer windows, though. I mean, if, if Tottenham had invested and, and bought... I can't remember who they, who they, who were, they were linked with that, that January. But if they'd kicked on and, and maybe finished top two or three, who knows where they'd be now. Well, Harry I mean, Redknapp would be in his, his 11th season. <laughs> I, I don't think that, he would have taken the Real Madrid job by now but um, <laughs> Manchester United versus Chelsea Johnny just a final word on the actual FA Cup final I mean we'll probably preview it in depth before the actual final I would uh, suggest but Conte, Conte's got a big issue with cup, with knockout football uh, he's not won a cup I don't think um, lost last season in a final when it was a favourite it was interesting yesterday in his press conference that he said we're not favourites this time and I don't think they are I think Mourinho's Manchester United in a big May final you, you always have to back them they will uh, they will come up with a with a bespoke plan they will defend with six behind the ball uh, with a, a back line of six and Eden Hazard will get the shit kicked out of him yeah do we feel like Conte's team has been so far it's felt like they're going out with a whimper now they got kind of the easy semi playing against a team that's probably about to get relegated um, and, and won it so I'm sure they'd argue differently, but it, because it feels like this is tailing off, this old Chelsea experience for Conte, if they lose this, it really does, it is a kind of just a pathetic end to his reign, which I think has been quite interesting. And actually, you know, it, what he did last year, I think was an incredible success. Yeah, it's uh, they're a shadow of their sales from last year. Uh, I think 
the second the whole Diego Costa thing kicked off, that was, in hindsight, the beginning of the end for him. Uh, they lost their their main striker, the guy who bullied people, uh, for lack of a better word. He showed them that you know we're a team to be messed with, and they didn't. They just don't have that. They don't have that with Morata. Uh, Morata is is the embodiment of too nice. Yeah, almost. And Hazard, he's gone off the boil far too much this season. You saw on Sunday when he wants to play, he was really, really good yesterday. Yeah. But also, he does need somebody. He does does need people around him yeah. to make the runs and to, to to provide him with service, and also to to almost take the pressure off him a little bit. I think there there are times when he's had to carry that side, and uh, you know hasn't quite been able to do it. Uh, yeah, they just need. You know, they're going to have to. Obviously, with a new manager, probably going to have to retool. Um, I, I thought Luis Enrique was a good fit for there, but uh, I think it was Matt Law for the Telegraph reported this week that Chelsea are considering going in a new direction with all this. They've been linked with a lot of names. They've, they certainly spoke to the agent of uh, Leonardo Jardim, and they've got uh, Sari was one of the names being linked. Sari would be really interesting uh, because Abramovich has always wanted that beautiful football. Luis Enrique, obviously, immense success. Uh, with Barcelona, but more questionable spells uh, with Roma. Celta Vigo was, a, I think, a qualified success. Those sorts of guys they've been linked with. Allegri as well. But maybe it's a, uh, Matt Law's report was that they're looking at finding a younger guy, a project, and it's like, would you kind of... It felt like they were almost testing the water. Like, would you accept a year without a trophy, maybe a year, two years like Klopp, to find your feet, to get a real project going, like a Pochettino-style thing with Spurs? And it would be interesting, of course, if Chelsea did that. I don't know who they're thinking of. If you're looking at Nagelsmann or Domenico Tedesco, one of these German guys, and being like, okay, that's the guy. Um, but I, I'm interested to see what direction Chelsea go in. And that may obviously now be affected by the biggest news on Friday, which was Arsene Wenger announcing pretty clearly against his will that he wants to uh, to leave. Johnny, what hang, was your... Hang on. Go what? On. Yeah, no. You, you, <laughs> what? You, well, I, I should say it. It was a, a little peek behind. I was the off. Curtain. I was off for the weekend. What? Johnny was on holiday and uh, still wrote me uh, a piece on Wenger, uh, <laughs> for which I, I'm very thankful. Um, your piece, I, wrote, I wrote it for the fans, really. Yeah, no, of course, <laughs> uh, don't we all? Your wrote, piece wrote against was your will. <laughs> more about the fact that it, it was someone who was who was endlessly committed to the belief that football could be beautiful, and that was uh, something that lingered well not lingered it was it was a key pillar throughout his reign of 22 years when he had success and when he didn't have success because a lot of the the stuff written about him over the last three four days has been kind of clearly defining the two eras the era of Wenger was good and the era of Wenger was not so good um but he was a guy that ultimately stuck the idea that he thinks football can be an art form I, I mean, I think there was a, a famous, very, very famous quote where he said that my aim is to, is, to, is to do, if you do something so, so well, to accomplish something so brilliantly that it turns into art, which, which is a, a sentence that I often think of when we're recording this podcast. Uh, I, I wonder if, if we talk about the two eras of Wenger, whether there are actually three. There was obviously the, the amazing era of success between 96 and 2004. And then comes the, the kind of the consolidation bit where they genuinely have their hands tied financially because of the stadium from about 20 last five years 2012 2013 onwards the, the stadium is pretty much paid off they are financial heavyweights they've got massive cash reserves abominable cash reserves mm -hmm. and the decline continues so I, I wonder whether it's actually worth thinking about the Wenger era in, in those in those terms rather than simply the boom and bust I think uh, there are two things that kind of struck me about this and fortunately I wasn't pressed into action to actually writing something myself on uh, Friday because we you know you jumped into action and we had Miguel writing however many pieces he wrote and, and Jack and stuff and we had the news story that that there was interest in Luis Enrique and there's, there's been some contact there the interesting thing for me is it, kind of twofold one Arsene Wenger leaving has, has kind of come down to fan power in the end um, 
And people, you know, people often say, you know, the only way they'll understand is if you hit them in the pocket, hit them where it hurts. You start kind of not going to the games and stuff. And this season, after years of Wenger out, really, that is what had happened. And we knew the Americans would be most acceptable to this because they don't seem to care about anything else. Uh, Kroenke and his, and his son. And people did start not going to games and boycotting games. And then what we saw, the, the kind of... I was really surprised by his backlash yesterday, saying kind of he blaming the fans for blaming the fans for this. And what I thought was going to be a really sort of a much more harmonious final month or so in charge, and people getting behind him and the team, and they might have a better chance against Atletico, who are a clearly superior football team. But if they've got a bit more motivation because it's the end of Wenger, I think I read that completely wrong. It feels like there's a, a lot of it's almost like an acrimonious sort of split now, which I, I really thought they would get over just for the sake of the previous 22 years. Well, Wenger was sacked. Let's let's put this in, in quite stark terms. He was told, you're going in the summer. You can be sacked now or you can be sacked later. You can put your own spin on it, but you're not staying. And if, if somebody tells you you're not staying, what what's, that, that's being sacked, isn't it? But I think that the Arsenal board have quite cleverly managed to dodge the sort of the negative influence of sacking Arsene Wenger after 22 years. They've said, you can go on your own terms and there isn't that kind of, there isn't that, that sort of poisonous feeling. Now, over the next few weeks, because Wenger clearly does have stuff that he wants to get on his wow, chest. Yeah, no, that's what uh, I mean. That, that may well, you know, that, that strategy may well backfire on them. But I, I think it's, the first thing we have to do is, is, is call it what it is. As I, I think I, I wrote on, on Twitter last night, if, you, if you're pushed into going before you're pushed, have you really gone before you're pushed? The, the philosophical questions we're all asking, Jack. Uh, do you think, do you think uh, fundamentally that Arsenal have done the right thing? Yeah, I mean, they had to because you just see from his press conference yesterday, he still believes he's the right man and he will hold on to that job till the day he died if it was up to him. Uh, he believes that no one can do a better job than he can. He believes he's performing and Arsenal performing to their maximum at the moment um, and they can't improve on what he's doing and only he can improve on what he's doing. Uh, and I think it's that level of stubbornness which ultimately has it's just forced Arsenal's hand. They they had to do it because he was, was not going to do the honourable thing. Um, so they just had to cut the cord. I'm not, I'm not an Arsenal fan, but I, I was a Wenger loyalist all the way through. I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen him just go on and on and on and die in the job and, you know, be sort of preserved in formaldehyde like, like Lenin and Stalin <laughs> in a mausoleum, maybe just like prop him up in the dugout in his massive big coat. Uh, I would have loved to have seen that happen. But as I say, I'm not an Arsenal fan and it's not really my call to make and it's not really our call to make. It's for the, for the last two or three years, it wasn't the fact that Arsenal were bad. It was that they were boring. They were spectacularly, stupefyingly, predictably dull. Well, and that's the key word I think predictable I think uh, you, you kind of you always knew what was coming like every every, uh, every turn of the farce it was very much a foreseeable like embarrassment you know even 2013 2012-2013 when he uh, Wenger was, was responding to their kind of their definite deficit in central defence and central midfield by just buying more and more attacking midfielders there was a kind of could this work could this is, is he actually he's, he was trying to recreate mm-hmm. what he had now it's it's sort of that formula has been shown to to have not worked, and as a as a club as a business that that relies as much on its its ability to to provide advertising space for other companies as for its own success, if you don't have the storyline, if you don't have the narrative, if you're not if you're not engaging people, then it's it's really hard from a commercial level to sustain that. Well, and, and the commercial thing absolutely has to play part here because. Arsenal, the thing that Wenger has done is, is you remember the club that he took over was a was a club that you know they played at Highbury and it, and it was not amateurish, but the players were out boozing after training every day. You know, it's a completely different world, and, and that's been covered extensively. What he leaves behind is one of the biggest clubs in the world with a state of the art, huge stadium, with an okay squad. Granted, that needs some work. Incredible cash reserves, as, you, as you've commented on, Johnny. And, the, you know, it was two days before this was announced, they were talking about FIFA potentially ditching the Confederations Cup and kind of expanding the Club World Cup. And, and that 
fundamentally is a realisation that, you know what? People care about club football more than international football. It's something we've talked about on here quite a few times. Now, if you imagine a Club World Cup in the summer, 32 of the biggest teams in the world, and they convene in, let's be honest, probably Azerbaijan or somewhere, some forlorn regime that's paid loads of money <laughs> to FIFA to hold the, the tournament in completely ludicrous circumstances. Who won't be sponsoring this podcast. Yes, no, no, none of the above. Uh, so, like, you know, they're playing in Yemen or wherever, and you've got 32 teams, and the idea was there were 18 teams that kind of got their entry, like, guaranteed. And one of those was Arsenal. Now, Arsenal are going to finish sixth, possibly seventh in the Premier League this year. But this is what Arsenal have become. Arsenal are a massive club, as we know, looking at just like web traffic, for example. Arsenal are one of the top three clubs for us in the world. And Arsenal were the same at previous places I've worked. And they've got an enormous fan base in India, in Nigeria, like all around the world. People know Arsenal as a club that played good football and a club that's had success you know because there are people who say anything between 21 and, and 40 now who have grown up with the Invincibles and they've grown up with even the team before that like the kind of the Dixon Adams sort of era they were the most successful team when the internet was coming of age yeah and, and, and that's huge and it's an enormous I think that's probably the most salient point is that that helped spread them around the world basically and Arsenal have done a great job of making the most of that and they've become this huge global entity and Arsene Wenger has played a bigger part in that, I think, than anyone else. Are we going to say David Dean? No, no, I think, I, no, I think he's, he turned them into, into a giant and when he took over, I think in, well, in, when he took over in 96, they were occasionally a mid-table club, occasionally a team that, that challenged for the title, but, but they'd, they'd spent quite a few seasons being you know, eighth, ninth, thirteenth, that sort of that sort of size. And and when you create this corporate behemoth, when you create this huge all powerful thing which is more of a business perhaps than a than a sports team at times, what happens is you become susceptible to, to the money men. And that's why when the fans started staying away from games, that, that was ultimately the thing that did for him. Nothing else on the pitch, nothing else that's happened before, missing out the Champions League, whatever. It was the fact that that people start staying away from games. Now, I think it's reassuring in many ways that fan power can still have that effect in this time because we live in such an insulated sort of corporate football world now that you almost think that there'd be a, a never-ending supply of people willing to come to the games still, mm-hmm. tourists or whoever. But it's a slight reassurance that, that fans still do have that power in the 21st century. It's a shame that it, it's Arsene Wenger, who's a, a wonderful man, I think, and... and I think he's been been great, obviously, for the league and stuff. It's a shame for him that he's having to leave against his will, but that's how these things work sometimes. I have Arsenal supporting friends who, are, for the first time in months, are, are trying to get tickets for the Burnley game yeah. and saying, can you, know, can you get us tickets? You're a, you're a sports journalist. Can you get us tickets for the Burnley game? Not how it works, guys. That's not how it works. Um, I, found. I uh, Well, I mean, I was talking to an Arsenal fan about two weeks ago who said he wouldn't pay for another ticket till till Wenger goes, until Wenger's gone, which made me wonder: Does it now count? Now that like, would you now go to one of the farewell games, which I think would be what most fans would want to do? Um, they still got the Atletico Madrid game, which I guess we should preview. Atletico Madrid are a miles better team than Arsenal. Uh, we should put that out there. Jan Oblak did admit that they're kind of tired. Um, do you think they've got a better chance of progressing because of this Wenger news? I'm not convinced. I think for if you, even if you look uh, against West Ham for large parts of that game, they weren't brilliant. They were pretty average. They're pretty stale. Um, yeah, they came on strong in the last 20 minutes and scored three more goals. But there wasn't the from the fans. There wasn't the reaction that people were expecting uh, for Wenger. There was no ovation from the players. There wasn't like a we must win this for him. It it didn't feel like like a different Arsenal and I'm not convinced it will again on Thursday. First leg being at the Emirates I think makes a makes a big difference. I think if the second leg had been at at the Emirates had they been playing the second leg at home and maybe they'd they were two goals down and and, and scored with 20 minutes to go then then that that surge of sentiment that Wenger driven kind of emotion might might be enough to to get them over the line. I think playing the second leg in Madrid almost negates that. Well the thing with Atletico is, 
you don't want to be in a position where you're having to chase the game and have to score goals against them because they're the best defensive team in Europe over the last four or five years without any question of a doubt. And they've got Griezmann on the counter-attack and, and Koke and Saul and, and all the, the talent they have. Do I see a situation where they could catch Atletico out and, and, and nick a goal and, and a one-all draw? Because what Atletico don't tend to do is score lots. They don't. They don't. They win a lot of games one-nil and and two-one and, and whatever. So if they could nick maybe like a one-all draw from the first leg, it's, the, it's the tie the will be alive going into the last half an hour. Pretty much whatever happens, the tie will be alive, and. In many ways, that's what Atletico want. And they're, they're sort of the Djokovic of football. They want it to go long and deep mm-hmm. and they want to be able to grind you down and say, like, what have you got? Because I've, you know, we've got... Things suddenly getting very very hot in here. <laughs> um, but, I mean, they're fundamentally, Atletico, an incredibly tough team to play against because they're so hard to break down, so hard to score against. Um, and Arsenal, traditionally, you would say, are, are one of these great attacking teams, but are they still that great attacking team I mean they, they've got good attacking players you've got Ozil who can create something and Lacazette Aubameyang guys who are notionally top strikers but do we really think like what so what percentage chance would you give Arsenal getting through to the final here uh, 15 10 15, 15 35 35 35 40 I'd, I'd have it around 22 and a half percent that would be mine um <laughs> And we're not going to preview RB Salzburg against, or is it Salzburg or Leipzig? One of them against Marseille, because that's the other semi-final. I think the winner of Arsenal-Atletico should go on and win the whole thing. For Atletico, it wouldn't mean much, except it's just another trophy. For Arsenal, obviously, it would mean the world, because the new Champions manager League. could come in and, and have the Champions League. Just a word from either of you, not who you expect, but who would you like to take over at Arsenal? Uh, I think they should go for Conte. I think it would, if Conte leaves Chelsea and they don't put a clause in that he can go to another Premier League team that is who I would like to see at Arsenal it's not a bad shout um, Wenger's out of work in the summer <laughs> I'm a sporting director Abs- absolute banter absolute banter <laughs> if, if they unveil their new manager and it's Wenger if you go on you must have a, you must have a name Nagelsmann Nagelsmann uh, actually uh, Eddie Howe or, or Nagelsmann I think Howe has been kind of unfairly sidelined from the conversation because he's had his like little trendy moment in the sun and, and now he's just a kind of very good young English manager in the Premier League. But uh, if they're looking for somebody who will change the way that they, they think and who has a fresh approach to the game in the same way that Wenger did, then you're looking at somebody young. And I think Nagelsmann and Howe are probably the two near the top of my list. Nagelsmann would be interesting. I mean, Howe... Uh it's kind of it would be a leap of faith for them to do that. I don't know how risk averse because there does because there's been this like sea change inside the club with these new people being hired. Um, the guy from Barcelona that's arrived, Sven Mislintat, who's there, and uh, Josh Kroenke taking a bigger role on. You don't know. I don't know personally. These I don't know how they operate, so I don't know how risk averse they are. But American owners do tend to be. But then again, what what Stan Kroenke did with his NFL team was hire the youngest head coach of all time, 31 years old, Sean McVay, and he took the team from being the worst team in the league to being a playoff team within one season. So it's not it's not out of the realm of possibilities. They also, I think, uh, their NHL team, Colorado Avalanche, I think they did that with Joe Sackage as well. But I don't know enough about NHL to set up for sure. Uh, we'll just finally look ahead to the Champions League semi-finals this week. Um, but I, I really struggle to... It is... Not Juventus, it's Bayern Munich versus Real Madrid. You're going to both legs of this, correct? Yes, yeah. Um, what are you most looking forward to in this one? I'm looking forward to watching the second leg of Roma against Liverpool in a bar in Madrid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, well, I, I think I, I really want to see... I mean, Roma against Liverpool is, is probably... It's, it's, it's the standout semi, isn't it? Bayern and Real Madrid have played... So many times. So, so many times. Um and I know I should be trying to drum up a little bit more excitement about this thing as I'm going to both legs. And I've not been to, to Allianz before and I'm really kind of... I think, I think it might be the best football stadium in the world. I've heard, I've heard this, but I also heard from, from James Gearbert at the, at the Times yesterday that it, it takes about two hours to find a press entrance. Have you been... Have you been I, yeah, I went to Bayern Atletico, the, the, the semi... I did, the one when Atletico played Real Madrid in Milan. 
I did right. I did three of the four semi-final legs, including both of Bayern Atletico. And it was Pep Guardiola's Atletico against Diego Simeone's Atletico. Uh, sorry, Pep Guardiola's Bayern yeah. against Diego Simeone's Atletico, which was, like as you'd expect, belting football against mm-hmm. a brick wall of humans. Um, I thought the Allianz for a new stadium I mean I'm a massive stadium geek so you've you've set me off here one looks brilliant from the outside important yeah two Instagrammable looks great on the inside um, retains a brilliant atmosphere like really good atmosphere four press facilities excellent they've got uh, beer on tap after the game they've got a carvery where you can where there's guys slicing like roast beef off for you and stuff I'm talking high grade vegetables like everything so like the, the, Fantastic the, chassis and legs all the way up to there. I mean, that was kind of where you were going there. No, no, no. The press, conference, <laughs> the press conference room is like an auditorium. So it's like you've got facilities, tick, looks great, tick, atmosphere is excellent, Wi-Fi works. Like it had everything you'd want from a game, easy to get to on the uh, the, the U-Bahn, I think it's called. Um, and yeah, I just loved it. I thought it's the best modern stadium uh, I've been to for sure. I mean, like you, you've got to discount like places like the Bombonera because it's Great for a different reason, but the Allianz but might be the best that, that's, uh, that's Buenos Aires. That's Boca, yeah. yeah. Um, and the Mestalla at Valencia is, is great, but for a different reason. It's just so steep, and it's like a proper football ground. This is, is one of the few modern ones that, that captures still you know, a great atmosphere. And, and I don't know, like it keeps the fans really on top of the pitch as well, which is important, rather than Wembley, where they're all spaced out and about 400 yards back. Well, I've been told to get there about three or four hours early. I think you'll be right, but I mean, if you're hungry, then, then certainly. Oh, in the the metro station there, brilliant, brilliant bratwursts in the. So get one of those, but only one of those. I had two, and you, you'll fill yourself up. I'll just, I'll just FaceTime you when when, when I get. No, there. Yeah, you, no. you, you can you can give me instructions. I'll also give you the Madrid restaurant recommendations. Um, but this this game, Bayern Munich. There's a, th- a weird thing where the Spanish kind of fear German teams, because. German teams tend to have this ruthless efficiency which really worries Spanish people who are the ruthlessly most inefficient people on the planet. Um, And Bayern Munich and Real Madrid obviously have a a huge history. But I I do have a little, little, I don't know, a little twang that I think your Pinkers and co could shock Real Madrid. I don't think this Real Madrid team are that good. I don't think this Bayern team, having seen them in Seville, are that good. But it's just a, a feeling that Yup's done it before in this kind of same situation. I think he might do it again. I think we, we've seen quite a lot of frailties from from Real so far this season. I think Bayern are a little bit better than people think they are, and they've, they've certainly shown that again in the in the Bundesliga. Uh, I think what has troubled Real this season is is pace. I mean, their, their defense just isn't isn't as quick as it used to be. Uh, and that's one thing that Bayern do have and, and have had for the last few years. Um, Kingsley Coman, Douglas Costa. Yeah. I think you have to go with those two ahead of Robin and Ribery yeah. for this one. Um, it's the little channel between um, Sergio Ramos and Marcelo has been their weakness for the last two, three years now. You just need a, basically a really good right attacker to take it on. And I think someone like Douglas Costa or Kingsley Coman, whoever you want to use in that slot. Costa at Juve, right? Who am I thinking of then? Who's the Bayern guy? Um, Coman. Coman. I'm gonna have to. I'm just gonna have to Google this because I know exactly <laughs> what I'm thinking. Of. I can see his bloody face. Um, you, Jack, went to Rome last week. I did. And uh, you spoke to Kevin Strootman. I did. I did. Yeah. Um, very interesting man. Uh, obviously, Kevin Strootman, known to many a Manchester United fan, as being linked with. The, them ruthlessly for about three or four years. The Nico Gaetan of his age. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And what did he have to say on that? Um, basically, yeah, he talked about um, whether there was actually any contact because uh, obviously he was one of the players that, one of the many players that Moyes tried to bring in to rejuvenate that midfield and also Lee Van Gaal looked to him as well having had him at uh, Holland. But um, yeah, insisted there was, uh, there was never any contact between them. Uh, and he's 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 mainly just looking forward to repaying the the loyalty shown by him shown to him by Roma uh, after his horrific knee injury. Um, he spoke really well on that. Talked about how he would never play football again, never complete ninety minutes again, um, and just that long struggle back to two years out 
with uh, two, three knee injuries, two knee surgeries. Uh, to come back from that and now to be playing in a Champions League semi-final is just quite a magnificent achievement. An interesting angle to this, obviously, is Mo Salah last night crowned PFA Player of the Year. Um, Roma sold him last year, presumably. I think they uh, undersold him slightly now for, what was it, 40 million euros, whatever. Um, but they know him best. You know, they've they've played with him in training every day. They've played with him on, on the team and they, they know his strengths and weaknesses. Uh, what did he say about what they're going to do to Mo? Uh, well, um, normally Streetman is actually deployed in the sort of man marking role, and he said that uh, that Juventus have prepared, a, uh, sorry, Roma have prepared a special plan for Salah. Uh, he actually was pretty interesting um, in the fact that if anyone's seen Salah over the past couple of years in Italy, they would see that he was quite uh, an inefficient striker. He missed a lot of chances, very wasteful. Some someone that you wouldn't recognise as the Liverpool striker this season. And uh, Streetman actually alluded to that, how it was almost frustrating um, that he missed so many one-on-ones with the goalkeeper. Um, and he actually said that the main difference now is that this guy's got a knockable confidence. Uh, he misses and just knows he's going to score the next. Whereas when he was at Roma, he didn't have that that belief that he was going to score every chance. No, uh, he, w- uh, he was quite wasteful in that the Real Madrid Champions League tie when... He went through that hole we were talking about between um, Marcelo and Sergio Ramos. Went through it about 20 times in that, over two legs and just couldn't score. Just didn't have it in him. Uh, I just Googled, by the way, Douglas Costa plays for, for Juventus, on loan from Bayern Munich. Um, I've reassessed my opinion. I'm going to say put Thomas Muller in there, just ghosting around in that <laughs> little gap. And that's where you're going to try and find something. Um, but well, we think Liverpool, going back to Liverpool, Roma, sorry. Go on. Yeah, no, I, I, my, 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 one of my favourite bits of uh, the interview was when... When Strobeman said that we're gonna we're gonna sort it out with Italian defending, <laughs> and this this I, I imagine is the the Italian a secret code. That, that, that <laughs> Who knows kept, what that could mean? That kept him so quiet in, in Serie A over the last two or three seasons. <laughs> that uh, I, I think you know they they've got a they've got a real real job there, and I think the re- the way to stop Salah is to stop him getting the ball. And, yes, and whether you know whether that means uh, they need to be a little bit. You know, a little bit more efficient than Liverpool in midfield, and, and stop him getting the service. That's probably the the most efficient way of, of because once he's got the ball, the form he's in, it's really tough. Who do we think is going to be? I, I think uh, there there are ways to play against Liverpool. Um, obviously, one of the, the things that's notable about them is how much they win the ball high up, especially Firmino. Um, I think he he's got this weird stat that he's had some of the most tackles or something in the league like this year. And so Roma need to be careful playing the ball out from the back. And sometimes, in the same way that Klopp found this with, with Guardiola, I think you can expose Klopp's teams by the kind of long diagonals and getting in behind. Um, I guess Edin Dzeko, who, who is it? Someone, someone pointed out recently, I think, Edin, uh, I think it was Jacob Steinberg in The Guardian did a, a piece on how Edin Dzeko is kind of the, the flag bearer for players who leave the Premier League in terms of becoming a, a real success. He's done a great job at Roma. Um, did it, did Strootman say anything else about kind of the, what what he thinks is a way they can they can take Liverpool on? Um, he spoke quite highly of their attack, obviously as you'd expect him to. Um, so I said, so what do you think is their defence? Then where you would call a weakness? And you know he's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm not weak in defence. Um, he just, I think for them it's getting the first goal at Anfield and really killing off the crowd and just not allowing the the crowd an opportunity to get behind Liverpool um, and once they do that I think almost just making Liverpool look boring that is their best way of beating of beating them Earlier in the season the way that teams would get at Liverpool was like you say long diagonal balls get in behind the fullback because Robertson and uh, Alexander, Alexander, Arnold. Alexander Arnold or Gomez push high and you get in the space behind and you get the crosses in the trouble is that over the last few weeks, they've become so much better with dealing with crosses. Van Dijk has had this really transformative effect on how they defend their penalty box, quite apart from all the other stuff that he's brought. Lovren seems to have... He's 20 25% better as a player since, since Van, Van Dijk has arrived next to him. And so the, the, the ways that you would get at Liverpool earlier in the season aren't necessarily going to be as successful now because, as we see, that they've tightened up so much in their own 18-yard box. It's hard to counteract someone like Dzeko because 
he just has this in the same way it's very difficult to play against pure speed if you come up and get a guy who's what six foot seven or whatever he is it's very he's not six foot seven is he's he? massive he's enormous he's, he's large I mean I, I suspect he's, you know you wouldn't want to get on the you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of him in, a, in a, the Sainsbury's self-checkout area but he I'm going to I'm going to look this up I reckon he's min six six Oh, but one meter ninety three, six foot five inches. That's six four. About six four. <laughs> Big guy. Um, we've seen Lovren get exposed on those kind of. He loses a man behind him quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Alexander Arnold, Alexander Arnold and Robertson obviously wouldn't have the height uh, to deal with far post headers like that. So that's an obvious way of, of trying to get them. But I think that Roma are really going to need to compete in midfield. I think the Liverpool midfield has been kind of underrated in the way that. Uh, especially that that Man City game where they had uh, it was the three English lads and there was Milner, uh, Oxlade Chamberlain and Henderson. Roma are really going to need to to stop what they do, which is which is quickly recycle the ball and get it forward to to one of those three. I think Roma do have the players, and I think Strootman is going to be a key part of that because he has to basically shield that back four, and then it's his distribution's got to be perfect because Firmino is going to be on Strootman, I guess virtually from the get-go. Uh, but fundamentally, I think this could be quite... This feels like a very explosive Champions League tie, whereas the one you're going to feels more like... Um, Regal. Like yeah. it's, like it's going to be... Yeah. Like everyone's wearing their finest suits, so they couldn't possibly get it messy, whereas Liverpool-Roma, everyone's wearing like fluorescent jackets. Bibs. And, and, and probably going to need helmets and, and goggles as well. Anything else you'd like to say about the Champions League semi-finals before we wrap things up? No, I'm, just, I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to... Uh, I think... The atmosphere at Liverpool is going to be great, but I also think the atmosphere at Roma is just is going to be on par with it. I think in for two spectacular legs. I I I just want to know. So when I when I come out of Munich Airport, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll work this out. I'll also uh, I'll give you uh, my best restaurant in in Madrid, where you should definitely have dinner. It's a delight, uh, and it, the food's right up your street well, as well. What is it? I mean, let's share it with the with our listeners. Uh, Gastromachia in, in it's in Chueca, which is. Uh, the gay district, but also like the best district for bars and restaurants uh, on the street called Calle Palayo. And it's just kind of more like 21st century reimagined uh, tapas sort of stuff. Um, a lot of good kind of raw bits. Um, they also just do great seafood. Madrid gets the best seafood in Spain because it's the first stuff they fly in. They, they kind of get it on the plane straight in the morning, and then you can have it by 9 a.m. So Better than San Sebastian. Oh uh, yeah, no, no, they really? they reassure me that it's it's absolutely the best in. Do you remember where we, where we went to dinner in um in Madrid when you were, when you were out living in Madrid? We went to Maison Chistu. Oh, Maison Chistu is uh, Gareth Bale's favorite restaurant. Gareth Bale's favorite restaurant. His favorite dish: egg and chips. Ham, egg and chips. Ham, ham, ham yeah. egg and chips. He's, um, uh, he's getting um. That that place is good. Spare. It's just expensive. They do um that steak where you it comes out on the hot clay plate and you cook it yourself. It's yeah. like why am I paying a lot of money to cook my own meal? Yeah, no, it it is expensive, and I think you're paying a little bit of a premium for having loads of smiling photos with with the, the owner with Real Madrid players on yeah. the, on, on the window. Well, they do uh, say the it's the best ham uh, in Madrid, the ham on, but that is only proof that we've gone so far off topic that it's time to to finish up. Uh, may I I thank the the pride of Wales, Jack Austin, as ever, for coming in for sharing his experience uh, with the Stroot, as uh, as he now calls him. Weird. It's like they're friends. Strooty fruity. Uh, never say that again. <laughs> Johnny, uh, thank you for coming in. Yeah, thank uh, you. Look forward to this week. I look forward to seeing what you discover on your travels. And uh, I guess we'll be back with you next week. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities 
abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.